Welcome to Boston Confidential, Bean Town's True Crime Podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail in Fenway Park. It's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the dark side of the Athens of America, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name is Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If there's anything you need in terms of investigative services, feel free to give me a call at Impact. And if I can't help you directly, I'll certainly direct you to the best person or agency. All right, guys, we're going to get right to it. Today's case is the case of Crystal Worthington in Truro, Massachusetts. If you don't really know where Truro is, It is on Cape Cod, very far down. It borders Provincetown and Eastham. And if you think of Provincetown as a flexed arm, Truro is right at the wrist area of Cape Cod, I guess you could say. It's an absolutely beautiful spot. It's called the Garden of Eden of Massachusetts, and that's an accurate description. Truro is real Cape Cod. Old timers used to say that real Cape Cod didn't begin until Orleans, which is a couple towns up from Truro, but Truro is still a fishing village. It has beautiful dunes, beautiful beaches, and a lot of money. But one thing that is kind of strange about Truro, it is for natives. Summer people certainly come in and they populate the area and the year round residents love them because that's their living. But it's kind of a cloistered space, a lot of artists, and in the wintertime, the place is barren. It's still a beautiful landscape, but people flee. The population plummets. It's already a small town, but in the wintertime, there's barely anybody there. The Worthingtons are pretty prominent members of the community there. They own several bayfront homes, a string of them, and a lot of these properties overlook the bay, so they're They're very expensive. The money comes from Toppy Worthington, and I think before him, Toppy Worthington is Christina Worthington's dad. He was a Harvard-educated lawyer, and when he was a younger man, he bought all kinds of real estate in Truro. So Christina Worthington and the rest of the Worthingtons were kind of like royalty in Truro. Christina Worthington and her family grew up in Hingham, Massachusetts, an affluent community It's naturally north of Cape Cod, but south of Boston. It's south of Boston by about 35 miles. Krista did very well in this ritzy community. She did well in the local school system and went on to Vassar College. Krista really came into her own at Vassar College. She always had a love for fashion, but at Vassar College, it really came to the forefront. She graduated from Vassar and went to Manhattan. She shortly thereafter became a writer for Women's Wear Daily. She also wrote for Elle Magazine and the New York Times. So Krista's professional career was going gangbusters, but her personal life was always a bit of a shambles. It was relationship after relationship, and none of them ever seemed to be really good or healthy for her. And she had contemplated a life without children at a certain point, and it appeared she was getting fed up with the Manhattan lifestyle. 
Krista always seemed to be concerned with having children or not having children. In the 1990s, she wrote a pretty groundbreaking article for Harper's Bazaar about being a woman and wanting a child, but not wanting so much the father in the child's life. And she asked, the scene she returned to in Truro, Mass, was her father had kind of gone off the rails. He was a rich man, but he was what they would describe as a serial philanderer, I think. As Christina was growing up, he had many girlfriends, and maybe this contributed to Christina's less than Stella love life. Maybe she couldn't trust because she saw what her father had done to her mother. Her father and mother did end up divorcing. And what Christina returned to in Truro was the fact that her father was now cavorting with a known prostitute. This woman was also a heroin addict. And Christina felt that this woman was taking all of Toppy's money and it was just a horrible relationship, but Christina had no real control over her father. She also had some type of crazy relationship with the rest of her family. Like I said, the Worthingtons were like royalty in this community. They had a string of bayfront homes and all the amenities one could enjoy, but they didn't really get along. They seemed to be a lot of jealousy within the family. And Christina seemed to want to separate herself from that a little bit. She moved to one of the family's bungalows, which was actually a beautiful piece of property. It sat on a perch overlooking the bay, but it was very isolated, especially in the winter. But I think a certain piece of Christina enjoyed that isolation. Sometime during Christina's transition from Manhattan back to Cape Cod, she got some bad news, a medical bad news saying that she couldn't have children. But she got back to Cape Cod and seemed to have been enjoying it. But Christina's woes with men continued. She made some bad choices, and one of those bad choices involved the local shellfish constable. His name was Tony Jacket, and he was a striking figure, well over six feet tall. What people call is astoundingly good-looking. He had black curly hair, and Christina fell for him pretty quickly. But Christina did know this man was married. And he had been married for 27 years, and he had six children, but she fell head over heels in love with them and began sleeping with him soon after coming back to Truro. Christina was shocked to learn that she was pregnant a short time after returning, and she was 42 years old. She had recently been told that she couldn't get pregnant, but here it was. She was ecstatic, but she kind of felt trapped by the relationship with Tony. The duo made a mutual decision where Christina would just have the baby and Tony would be in the wind, wouldn't have to pay child support, didn't claim the child all, and all that. But as Christina would write in her diary, she was still in love with him and she was massively upset that she was in this situation with her child. The baby was born. She called the baby Ava. It was a beautiful, curly-haired child, looked just like Tony Jacket. And was absolutely beautiful and was the apple of Christina's eye. It seemed that Ava filled the void in Christina's life that had always been there, but she was depressed about her relationship with the baby's father. Christina did abide by the deal that she had set with the baby's father, Tony Jacket, didn't tell the wife or anything like that. But as the baby got older, 
she became more bitter about their deal, I guess. And when Ava was about one and a half, the baby started asking about her father, her daddy, and that broke Christina's heart. So she demanded that Tony tell his wife, Susan, about their affair and about Ava. And it was a pretty bad couple of weeks. Tony did end up telling his wife, Susan, and remarkably, she kind of took it in stride. She was heartbroken about the affair, but she loved children and wouldn't turn Ava away. At a certain point, they actually started having Sunday dinners together so the baby could know her father, father's wife, and all that. So it was kind of like an extended family. I'm sure the two women were confused, but they were trying to be adults about it, and they moved forward. Since Tony and Christina ended their affair, Christina started a relationship with Tim Arnold, who resided about 100 yards away in another bungalow with his father. Tim was a children's book author, kind of a mild-mannered guy. He fell quickly in love with Christina and Ava and lived with them for a time. But Tim Arnold had some health problems, one of which was double vision. He couldn't drive. He had to be kind of carted around. And for whatever reason, their relationship fizzled and he moved back in with his father. But Christina still wanted him to have a relationship with Ava and they remained friends. Okay, so we're going to fast forward a little bit to January 4th, 2002. And this was the last time Krista was seen alive. She was seen at a supermarket on Cape Cod with Ava on surveillance cameras shopping. Just afternoon, about 12.14, I believe, was the last time she was seen. So she would have left the market on January 4th, 2002, returned home and unloaded the groceries, but she'd never be seen alive again. Christina spoke to her babysitter about 8 p.m. on Friday night. That was Friday, January 4th, 2002. And she was killed sometime after 8 p.m. and before noon on January 5th, 2002 because she had missed the hair appointment. So the police were able to put that in brackets, that time frame. So now it's Sunday afternoon, January 6, 2002, and Tim Arnold was home with his dad. His dad was watching the Patriots game, and Tim kind of thinks up this idea. He was kind of trying to stay in Christina's life. He had borrowed a flashlight at one point to walk home and wanted to return it. He admitted later that, yes, he wanted to see Christina, see Ava, and see if he could, you know, have a good moment with the two of them. Maybe it would bring them back together. Who knows? So Tim is driven over to Christina's house by his dad, takes the flashlight and goes in. But as he approaches the property, he sees two newspapers on the front stairs. And that was the first thing that made him think something was off within the house. So Tim Arnold peers in. And he could see Christina splayed out on the floor. And now he's alarmed. He knocks on the door, knocks on the door, ends up finding a way into the house. But what he finds is a hellscape. Christina's on the floor, naked on the bottom, and she has a top on. But the baby is sitting with her, trying to nurse on Christina's breast. Ava knew Tim very well and was comfortable with him. She ends up going to him. He holds her, looks at the scene, freaks out, and brings the baby out to his dad. He puts the baby in the car and tells the father, you know, spells it out, 
Christina is D-E-A-D. So he goes back to his own house. He runs through the woods and calls the police from there. So it was pretty quickly determined that Christina Worthington, age 46, was the town of Truro's first murder in 30 years. The police get to Christina's bungalow and begin their investigation, but Christina was no housekeeper by any stretch of the imagination, and the state of the house kind of had contaminated the crime scene. Also, Ava had been left alone for days with her mother, and there was evidence that the baby, God bless her, was trying to help her mother. She got a face cloth to try to wipe the blood from her face. Christina had been horribly beaten, and she tried to help her mother. She got a dropper, which the baby must have took medicine in, and tried to put water using the dropper into her mother's mouth, and it's just a horrible scene. The baby's footprints were all through the house in blood, and she had tried to help her mother to the best of her ability, and I'm glad Tim Arnold had went over there because what would have become of her in the next few days? The investigation quickly ramps up, and the state police naturally join this investigation. I think I've mentioned in previous podcasts that in Massachusetts, the town police don't really investigate homicides because there's just not enough of them to become proficient at it. The state police come in and take control of the homicide investigation. The local police force is still involved, but the Mass State Police take the lead on it. The first stop for Mass State Police investigators was Christina's crazy love life. They interviewed Tim Arnold. Tim Arnold, I believe, was the original suspect. He said later that his own father had asked him if he had done it, and he had lived so close to her, he could have snuck out and done it, I I suppose. But they also wanted to interview Tony Jacket and his wife, Susan. So now you have three suspects, and I believe the Mass State Police eventually went down to New York City and investigated a magician, believe it or not, that Christina had dated previously. Crime scene had been kind of trampled by the baby, and then the EMTs come in and they touch everything, and this is just how crime scenes go, but it was kind of compromised. But there was DNA. It was DNA inside of Christina Worthington and some skin cells DNA on her breast area. So the police at least had that. So the investigation continues. They came at Tim Arnold pretty hard. They actually accused him of this murder, and he denied it. He says he didn't have anything to do with it. He loved her. Tony Jacket and Susan the same way. I believe both of those guys took a polygraph and passed. So they widened the search a little bit. Toppy, Christina's father, and his girlfriend took polygraphs and didn't pass. So there's a lot of question marks in the case, and the investigation kind of stalls. It's at this point that the district attorney, O'Keefe, does something unprecedented in Massachusetts legal history. He asks everybody in Truro to take a DNA test, and if they were not going to comply, he wanted to investigate them. The ACLU was up in arms over this, but it was determined that it was legal. So the community testing of DNA really led nowhere, but it was during this time frame that the Massachusetts State Police got some great news. There was a hit on the DNA, and that hit came back to Christopher McGowan, 
who was Christina Worthington's garbage man. Naturally, McGowan had been interviewed beforehand because that's the type of thing they do. They'll investigate garbage man, the gardener, the cook, whomever has contact with the victim. And when they investigated McGowan, he basically denied knowing her. He says, yeah, I do the garbage, but I don't have any relationship with her. And at that point, there was really no reason to take it any further with McGowan. He was a pretty well-known and well-liked guy in the area. So without any further evidence, they moved on. But when the DNA hit come back, they really started to get into Crystal McGowan's background. So when they began the background investigation on McGowan, they were alarmed. He had five current and open restraining orders from separate women. And within these restraining orders, it's delineated that he did abuse them. He choked them. He threatened them. Christopher McGowan fit the profile of somebody who would do further violence to a woman. And Christina was stabbed one time in the chest that went all the way through her body and into the floor. So this was somebody who had a rage against women. And Christopher McGowan certainly had a rage against women. He also had three children with three separate mothers. And I don't know if he took care of any of them, all of them, or what. But it seemed like Christopher McGowan was living by himself, doing these odd jobs, and had kind of abandoned these kids and their mothers. So as police continued investigating McGowan, they interviewed him, and his story kept changing. If you remember the first time he was interviewed, he says, I don't know where I wave to while I'm picking up the trash, but that's about it. He stuck to that story until the police put the DNA report in front of him. And he says, at that point, yeah, it could have been me. This was the first time McGowan changed his story. So as this progresses, he says, yes, it could have been me. So the police continue to pressure him, and McGowan comes up with a story. He says, yes, I had sex with her. That's right. But he says he had sex with her on that Thursday when he picked up the trash. And he he tells a story. To me, it sounds completely unbelievable. So he's picking up the trash on that Thursday, and Christina asks him into the house, asking him to help remove her Christmas tree. He says this conversation became more intimate as the two got closer together while talking, and they end up having sex on the floor of the living room. You know, I'm an adult. Sometimes these things do happen, but it sounds more like a movie to me. And he only comes up with this after he's called on it. If the DNA wasn't there, he would have stuck with, I don't know her. So the interview continues, and McGowan ends up confessing, at least to some involvement. I believe his first confession would have amounted to a charge of felony murder. And this is his second story. The second story is that he had been out with his friend, Jeremy Frazier, and another guy at a local juice bar. It was an underage bar, and they do these rap contests. And... These guys are actually caught on videotape, Jeremy Frazier, Sean Mulvey, and McGowan. And they're rapping and all that. They all seem to be having a good time. I don't know if adults could drink in this club and minors couldn't, but whatever it was, they called it a juice bar. So I don't know if they actually served alcohol or not. So McGowan states at some point, him and Jeremy Frazier go to Christina Worthington's house 
and he knocks on the door. He says these words to the state police detective. He tells Christina he's a little tipsy and wants a piece of ass. Excuse my language. And Christina's okay with it. So now Christina invites him in. This has got to be after midnight, I'm assuming, into the house with a friend that she doesn't know. And her and McGowan go to the bedroom and have sex. Well, Jeremy Frazier is walking around the house and McGowan states that he was stealing stuff from Christina. So McGowan and Frazier are ready to leave. But now Christina comes out of the house screaming that she's been robbed. And at that point, Jeremy starts punching her and McGowan admits he starts punching her. And then he says, we put the boots to her. And don't forget, Christina was thoroughly beat up and he starts kicking her. Frazier drags her back into the house and there was evidence of somebody being dragged. He continues to beat her in the house and he ends up stabbing her with a knife he finds on the sink or in the butcher block. Now, this story is a long way from the one that Christopher McGowan originally told. And don't forget, there's DNA from one person at that house. One person, Christopher McGowan. So the state police let him box himself in, and they say at the end of this portion of the statement that the state police have accounted for Jeremy Frazier's whereabouts after the rap party at the juice bar. And McGowan responds that, And I quote, well, then I guess it's all on me. Well, I guess it is because that's a confession. So I got to interrupt here a little bit. Before this interview took place, the state police told him that they wanted to record their interview. McGowan was totally against it. He didn't want it audio recorded and he didn't want it video recorded. And in Massachusetts, a defendant or a suspect has the right to do that. And he did sign a waiver. So it comes out in trial that this interview with the police wasn't audio or video recorded, but that was the wishes of the defendant. He knowingly signed a waiver and didn't want his interview recorded at all. So what the police end up with after this conversation with McGowan is a confession, which illustrated that he was culpable at a minimum for felony murder, and he had changed his story several times, I don't know her. We had sex the day before. It's a whole host of lies, and the state police did a good job boxing him in on that. McGowan's eventually arrested for the homicide, and they also charged him with rape in this case. And he was represented by a pretty famous defense attorney in Massachusetts called Robert George. He's an excellent attorney, and the district attorney knew he was going to be in for a battle on this case. The case really stood on the DNA but the DNA had been degraded and that caused the criminalists to say that the sperm in the skin cells on Christina's body could have been there earlier, but they couldn't really put a tight time frame on it. The defense brought up the fact that there were several other viable suspects, including Jeremy Frazier, who testified in this case, but it all kept coming back to, yes, there were other viable suspects in this case, but there was only one with DNA at the house. There's only one person in the courtroom who denied really knowing her and then admits when there's no other option that, yes, my DNA is inside her. Then he tries to throw his friend under the bus for this murder, thinking maybe he'll get off with less than first degree murder. But when they can account for Jeremy Frazier's whereabouts, he 
He says, it's all on me. It's basically a confession, and it was almost impossible for the jury to get away from that. One thing I think I've neglected to mention is that Christopher McGowan's African-American, so the race card was played during this, but the prosecutor stated that I can guarantee you that if this defendant was white, he'd be facing the same exact charges in the same exact courtroom. So at trial, the defense tried to deflect culpability from McGowan and put it on Frazier. They had the third friend, Sean Mulvey, testify that he actually took Frazier home after this party. There was a fight at the party. Frazier was drunk, too drunk, and he drove him home and stayed over at Mulvey's house. And Mulvey also testified at that point, Chris McGowan goes his own way. And the prosecutors say that's when he left the Upper Cape to go back to Truro and visit Christina Worthington. So basically, the prosecutors say, yes, there were other suspects, but there's one with DNA. There's one with a history of violence against women, and that's Christopher McGowan. So the case wraps up, and the jury deliberates for an astounding eight days, but they do come back with guilty verdicts, first-degree murder with atrocity. And after that, I stopped counting, but that's a mandatory life sentence for Christopher McGowan, first-degree murder. It also came out in trial that Christopher McGowan has a very low IQ in the 80s. He was also reported to have a low education level. So they're saying that his confession wasn't voluntary, that the police were tricking him and all this other stuff. The jury didn't buy it. I don't buy it. I don't think you'll buy it. So a first-degree murder verdict triggers a mandatory appeal. So he got an appeal on this case. And the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts really denied hearing it. He has tried several other times for a new trial, but that's also been denied. I believe Christopher McGowan is exactly where he belongs and he should spend the rest of his life in prison. And I just wanted to relay that the baby Ava was actually thriving after all this, believe it or not. Christina had set up in her will that her best friend would take custody of Ava, and the Jarrett's allowed that, but they all kind of worked together in Ava's favor. Ava was allowed to see her dad, Tony, stepmom, Susan, and there was six other kids, so they became this kind of clan, and Amira, I believe, is a friend of Christina's who took custody, and she's done a miraculous job, and last I heard was that Ava was in college and thriving. She was a beautiful young woman and a lot like Christina. There's a terrific 2020 special on this called A Killing on the Cape, which I got a lot of this information from. There's also a podcast I should probably tell you about that the defense is kind of set up and they go through all the reasons why they think Christopher McGowan is innocent. I haven't listened to it yet. You may want to. Just research it on Apple and it should come up. All right, guys, I think that's going to do it for this week. If you want to get a hold of me and I'd love to hear from you, please reach out at barry at bostonconfidential.net. And other than that, I'm going to be getting on to the next episode for you. If you like our podcast, please give us a good review on Apple. It really helps. And share our episodes when you see them. If you can, tell a friend. We're trying to grow a little bit here. 
but that's it. I'm out. I'll talk to you next week.